the What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and I'm here yet again with my friend and colleague, Brittany Crone, uh, for part two of our uh, mini series on racial identity. If, if you missed part one, go back and check it out. We kind of um, unpacked our own racial identities and experiences. Um, and today we are going to talk a little bit more about that, and then talk about how we bring these discussions into our families. Um, so again, if you missed part one, go back and listen, and then come back to this episode. Or don't, I mean, you know, listen to whatever <laughs> you feel like. <laughs> um, but Brittany, welcome back. It's good to have you back today. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Um, and so, you know, when we left off last time, we, we talked about... Um, kind of not fitting in any particular place and and what it was like to finally feel embraced. And we ended our conversation talking about the different markers of culture and what might cause us to feel more at home one place or the other. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering for you, and then I'll, I'll share for myself as well, but, but for you, how did you get um, to where you are today in terms of what feels comfortable to call yourself? Um, or at least what parts of that journey do you feel are worth naming, uh, in this conversation? Mm. Okay. That's a great question. I really, you know, being like a woman, a grown woman in this world is, has its own unique challenges. And what has really been, um, I guess, eye-opening for me and, and enriching was the opportunity to connect with a group of very, very diverse individuals in a multiculturalism monthly discussion um, back in 2018, I think it was, you know, they, they had been having these um, groups and I, I say they, as in the, the instructors had been teaching this for quite some time um, through the lens of a very specific framework um, that identified like 13 different variables of identity identifying, you know, who has been the historically included group and the historically excluded group. And we really just went through the process of identifying like where we were at in, within that chart and where, um, you know, where we identify these different areas in our lives through the lens of the five levels of interaction is what we were calling them or what, what the, the framework was called. Um, and it's something that folks can look up online from visions Inc. Um, I'm not like certified from, from that group or anything like that, but, um, the training and the discussions were all based around this framework that had been developed by visions Inc. And, um, that really gave me a way to channel, all of the emotion mm -hmm. that I had been feeling and like carrying through life. Um, Cause we've, we've chatted a few times and this is something that other multiracial, you know, biracial friends um, have identified. And even people that are raised within like very different cultures, you know, not mm -hmm. necessarily just race or race and, you know, many different cultures and, and abilities and whatnot. And uh, you know, it's, we've talked about like not being accepted truly in either group. And 
the different identities that are projected onto us. Um, so obviously we hold that in somewhere. Mm-hmm. It, it goes somewhere to yeah. all these thoughts and feelings and experiences go somewhere. Um, and it, it provided me a way to really define what I was experiencing and, and then be able to broaden the lens and not just brush over like, okay, you know, yes, racism is real. Uh, but I want to, I want to look at like solutions, right. Cause I'm a solution-minded person. Um, I definitely, you know, wanted to show up for my friends and family who are black, you know, in the black community in, a, in, in a really good way. Um, and also, you know, be able to have educated conversations with people who were blind and, and ignored, you know, Oh, color isn't real. I don't see color, all that stuff. Right. So it pushed me really to read, um, a lot more and just do more research on like the history, the real history beyond what we're taught in high school, mm. you know, in a, a U.S. history class, beyond what we're taught there, beyond what we're taught in like a world geography class of what slavery was. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, pushed me again to really be able to identify like all of those things I was feeling. And through that experience, like just being getting comfortable with the discomfort, because I'll, I'll tell you, like, there's still times when I walk into a room or, or I'm in a particular space with certain, certain people and it's still uncomfortable. Like I I still am very aware that, okay, I don't fit here. Um, or maybe more so what I think honestly been because of who I am, I'm thinking like, oh, they probably don't think that I fit here. Therefore, what do I need to do? Um, there are definitely spaces that I've walked into as well, where I've been like, okay, I'm not safe here. Like as a person of color, I, I'm like the looks, you know, the, the things that you overhear in a room, um, or even playing sports, like, and when I used to travel for softball and like the things get that get yelled at you in certain rural towns in Indiana. Um, so I think having that discussion group and then, you know, the personal reflection and research just really broadened my, my vantage point and gave me words to define what I had been experiencing and continue to experience as a human walking in this world, in this society, it's, it's especially like growing up in America, I would say, cause it's not focused like globally. Um, yeah. but that has given me a much stronger, I guess, confidence and just saying like, okay, I, I recognize, I think you mentioned in the last episode about like, there is a privilege that comes with, um, having a lighter complexion. Yeah. And, you know, my features like are kind of all over the place and I'm very ambiguous. I'm very Mm -hmm. ambiguous, but I don't, you know, when someone looks at me straight on, they're not going to say like, oh, she's black. Like they're not going to say, oh, she's a black woman. They're going to use other language. And, and I see that in myself. Right. And so having a way to identify that and the experiences that I've had and, and the emotions that come with all of those experiences has allowed me to feel really confident in saying like, okay, I, I know the privilege I have. And it's allowed me to almost make it a tool and say, like, how can I show up well for mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters in this world? Mm-hmm. And how can I, you know, deepen 
um, my empathy and and not try to, you know, participate in the toxic, you know, types of cultural appropriation, which all of it's toxic, right? So like, how yeah. can I not participate in cultural appropriation? How can I, you know, just show up as authentically as I can and be comfortable when people are like, oh, you know, what are you? And then I can say, well, I'm actually a multiracial person. Uh, you know, I was raised, you know, in a, in a technically white household because my dad is white and yeah. patri- the patriarchy is real, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's, that's kind of a very brief overview of the summary, mm-hmm. even though I probably just talked for like five minutes straight, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of like the arriving point. And I, you know what I will say, since we may lead in the, into this anyway, my daughter being multiracial as well with her dad, um, her dad is Mexican actually. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, me wanting to show up authentically and confidently as a woman of color, but also being mixed, like being a mezcla of so many different things. Um, you know, I really wanted to show that for her and model that well, and then her into those conversations. So, I mean, it's two big things there, like doing the inner work and personal work around understanding these thoughts and like being comfortable talking about them, embracing the discomfort. Right. And then also wanting to model that for my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. you, Thank you for sharing um, that brief overview, you know, of, of those portion of your journey. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll reciprocate. I, I want to kind of circle back to at least one thing though. You mentioned walking into a room and and feeling like you don't fit and that Mm -hmm. intuitively makes sense to me. Um, But most of my audience, if I had to guess is white Um, and probably, probably Gen X and boomer aged white folks. So I don't know that that will make sense to them. So I I just want to name what we're talking about when we're talking about Mm -hmm. not fitting. Um, And then you can add whatever you want to turn on what's the name for it. Um, But for me, when I'm evaluating if I fit in a space racially, a, I'm checking for safety, right? Like, mm-hmm. is there the potential here that I might suffer some physical or emotional harm as a result of not, usually not being white? I, I rarely am, like if I walk into a, a Latinx gathering, like I don't perceive my threats to my safety nearly the same way as I do if I walk into a white gathering. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, secondarily, it's also about like, how will they perceive me, right? Maybe they won't feel me, view me as a threat. Maybe they won't be a threat to me, but because our lived experience is so different, like communication might be a problem, mm-hmm. right? Like, will they understand the nuance of my experience enough that they can meet me where I need them to meet me, you know, and vice so versa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, because I was raised in a white household, I understand the white experience um, pretty well. Now, uh, wealthy white folks still confuse me. I'll admit, because I wasn't raised around wealthy white folks. So if y'all are listening, y'all are a little different. I haven't, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'm working on it. But if you're middle class or you're white and you're you're poor, like I get it. I I've been there. I lived that life, so that makes sense to me. But because white people don't often have to exist around non-white people, the same they can't say the same thing for me, you know. And so I don't know that my experience mm-hmm. translates well to their understanding. And so. Those are the things that I'm usually wondering about when I walk into a space and wonder, will I fit here? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really like how you you're saying, you know, walking into this space. And basically the question is like, do they see me? Mm-hmm. Do they see me? Do they understand? And I think that's 
really another layer to that of what I'm looking for as well. You know, like, can these people really see me or, or the question becomes like, how much of a mask do I need to put on here? How much do I need to play the game? Um, as I, (laughs) as I call it, and it's so not a game, but how, how much, how much do I need to package up other parts of me? Like even, you know, even how loud, I laugh sometimes feels very mm-hmm. like culturally wrong in certain spaces. Yeah. And that is interesting. Cause I, it's another thing like in the Latinx community. And then I know um, in, in the black community, like it's okay to be loud. Yeah. It's usually preferred. It's so, okay. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Like joy you know let's share joy let's you know just be 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 free right but it's i noticed um if i do that in a room full of white people heads will turn Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. and then i always wonder like and then they see me and what are they thinking i was like yeah but then i you know then you shrug it off and can't care too much. Right. And I keep laughing loud. <laughs> uh, occasionally I catch myself kind of apologizing for those things, but mm. those are like when you, when you're assessing if you fit or don't in a certain space um, yeah. and it can go the other way too. Like in, in a space in a room, if I go to um, a, a wedding or a reunion or, or anything like that, where it's predominantly uh, black, you know, I don't feel like anyone is hostile toward me, Yeah, but I do feel a sense of like, am I, am I welcome here? Or do they see me as someone who's trying to come in Mm -hmm. and take away? Like I get some of that white guilt, I think. Yeah. Being, (laughs) being raised in a white household and, and being, um, you know, looking how I look and there's always that idea of like, and this, I hope we get, you know, some questions or something about this conversation, to be honest, because I would love to hear from other people and like their experiences. So, you know, if you're listening and want to share an experience, I would be really interested to hear that. But um, my parents are an interracial couple and I, my partner is black and I am, you know, mixed as we've been discussing. And then when people see us and when we go to predominantly black, you know, spaces, my question is, am I being viewed again? Like, do you see me Mm. or am I being viewed as just another, you know, just another white chick who's, who, who took a a fine black man? Cause Mm. he's fine. So (laughs) I can say that, (laughs) but like, you know, that, that question comes up to like, am I going to be seen for, for who I am or are these labels immediately like thrown Mm -hmm. on, but it's, I feel the most comfortable around people of color. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. We need to do, you know, if we ever do start our own podcast, we should talk about uh, interracial relationships. It's it's a topic that's been on my mind lately and there's uh, the complexity is uh, so rich. Um, But another conversation for another day. Um, (laughs) You asked about my experience, like what, how did I get to the place of comfort that I have? And it's been a long journey, but I think, um, uh, things really started to shift, started to shift a lot for me, um, around 2016, two, two things mm-hmm. were happening there. One, um, I had started seminary and seminary for me, you know, 
when I went into seminary, I was agnostic. Uh, so like there was no logical reason to go. I, didn't, I wasn't going for a career in Peru. It just, um, I was at a, an inflection point in my life and decided to do things differently. And, and my gut said, go to seminary and start working at a church. So I did. Um, and seminary ended up being a place of like not only spiritual revival, if you will, but it allowed me to get in deeper connection to my own self. Um, I did a lot of healing, mm. got back into counseling, um, worked as a chaplain, which, which carries its own set of reflections with it day in and day out. Um, but, but during seminary, I also like, I, I became really close with a lot of the students of color and I started studying liberation theology a lot more. And for those that mm. don't know about liberation theology, it's theology written um from people on the margins latinx folks black folks uh asian folks uh women latinx women black women there are a lot of variations of it um but it's kind of taking our traditional white your western european dominant christian theology and um turning it on its head and inviting us to understand um, the person of Christ, uh, God, and the entire Christian faith as a mm -hmm. mission of liberation for oppressed people Absolutely. here and now, you know. And so, so kind of connecting more deeply with a faith-centered, <coughs> excuse me, a faith-centered in the experiences of the marginalized um, kind of allowed me to move more into that part of my identity. And at the same time, um, I also began reconnecting with my biological dad's family. Um, I'd been disconnected from them since I was like three. And so mm. I was 28 and, and finally reached back out to my, my aunt Sandra, who had been trying to get in touch with me for a while. And that reconnection, that, that connection point with black family, meeting some of my black siblings and just being welcomed there really deepened my own sense of black identity. Um, and it felt mm. beautiful and rich. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's like, that's one half of what was going on. The other half for those may, that may or may not remember 2016 was a very turbulent year politically. Um, you had mm. the election of Donald Trump, um, and, and all that came with it, which was a rise in uh, racial hate crimes, um, an increase in racist rhetoric, um, mm -hmm a lot of racists across the country were emboldened white supremacists specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so suddenly we're living in a political climate where I've got friends going to Trump rallies and they're being actively threatened by people that are mm -hmm. attending, you know, we've got yes. images and videos of black folks getting assaulted at these rallies. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. there was a, a black dude that got assaulted on the streets of downtown Indy, I think that year mm -hmm. or, or 2017. So suddenly, my own racial identity or harm perceived becomes even more important because I've got legitimate questions about my safety um, yeah. day in and day out, you know? And so, so I have like what's happening internally in me, right? We talk about the internal and external piece of identity, but then externally in our society, things aren't quote unquote hunky dory anymore, right? We're no longer right. post-racial. Right. Now this, this, this stuff just got real. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think the confluence of that, the convergence of that, those forces happening, you know, within the same time over a three year stretch really re-energized my own reckoning with like how I see yes. self um, and, and what I will name myself. And that led me to start calling myself black and biracial, right? Um, black, because this is how I'm perceived societally. Mm -hmm. um, black, because like phenotypically, my features are more black than they are white, you know, by and large. Mm -hmm. um, but also biracial, because I can't deny 
um, my whiteness. I can't deny the white family that I have. I can't deny that for a large portion of my life, I was raised in white culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so all of it felt applicable and there is no biracial cultural culture historically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I need to be closely associated with my blackness because that's where the history is. And I am also um, biracial. I am also white. So I need to capture both of them. And I, I don't know really any other anyone else that identifies as both black and biracial. Um, but I'm going to stick with it. And uh, eventually I think it'll catch on. And if it doesn't, it's still just what feels good to me. You know? uh, so that's kind of the highlight of, of how I've gotten where I've gotten. And we'll see where I go. Right. I'm going to continue to wrestle mm-hmm. and evolve. So what I call myself and how I call myself might shift as well. That's so powerful. Yeah. 2016, man, I remember I'm not like a painter or anything, but I just was so angry. I didn't know where to put it. So I tried to like make some art because why not? Right. Like (laughs) I couldn't, I was arguing with people on the internet. I was, you know, arguing with, uh, the person I was dating at the time who like just didn't get why I would have been so upset. And I, it really, that really resonate resonates. And then it took like for me two more years to find that group who was like discussing these things with a framework that I could really just dig mm-hmm. my teeth into and and take on. But yeah, it was everything. It's like the volume got turned up. Right. And that's why I'm, I'm the queen of sil- silver linings and so much harm has been done that I will say this with an asterisk of caution, but you know, I think if any silver lining came out of the Trump presidency, when it comes to, you know, this discussion around race is the fact that it really exposed the cracks in like our, I don't know, unity, like for anyone who would, was still kind of living in the, the fairy tale, rosy dreamland of like, Oh yeah. Racism is in the past, you Mm -hmm. know? Oh, all the, it exposed the heck out of those cracks. Um, so I was like, okay, well we had to do something there. There has to be some kind of, um, earthquake to, to make a shift happen. And I think that was the start of, of that. And it's still been rough and it's still been extremely difficult. Um, but we persist, you know, still I rise, you know, my Angela's like ringing in my head right now. Like you just still have to persist. Yeah. Because every every new politician is going to say like, oh, we're better now. <laughs> or, I mean, more and more lately, they're just saying, yeah, we just don't need to talk about that. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's not wild anymore. It used to be wild to me. Now it's like, okay, this is, I the, feel that. you know. Yeah. It's tragic. So, I mean, yeah, in short, I'm not a silver linings kappa guy. So I'm, I'm glad that you are. You can bring some balance to me. Um, yes. You know, but we're living in a society in which um, ha- more than half of us, I think, are wanting to kind of just be real about what is happening and what has happened so that we can prevent mm-hmm. the same mistakes that have been made in the past and prevent violence and hate. Um, and then a, a small but vocal minority is saying, yeah, no, this makes me uncomfortable. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's not do that, which mm-hmm. um, is just absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, in that spirit, we have children and we've got to raise mm-hmm. our children in this world today. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, my. Um, 
It's it's interesting, you know, because my my partner um, has has two kids who are both about one's my complexion, the other's a little darker. Um, so their uh, their mom, my partner's biracial, black and white. Their dad is black but light skinned. And then my son, um, they're all my kids, but you know, my biological son Kamani, um, he his mom is white and I'm biracial. And so he is white passing. Um, mm-hmm. like if in the summer you look at him, you might be like, ah, there's a little something in there. I don't know what, but there's yeah, a little something, <laughs> um, you know, a melanin. Right? I see a little melanin <laughs> peeking through the by and large, you know, he's, he's white passing. He's gonna, for those that follow the NBA, he's like, he looks like a clay Thompson out there. Right. You know, you're like, ah, something's there, but I'm, I can't be sure what and so <laughs> I wrestle with how do I is I'm still wrestling with my own identity. Right? You know, how do I help him understand his right and and mm-hmm. how do I help him understand his his claim to blackness while recognizing a few things. One, he might decide to identify as white or biracial or multiracial, right? I don't know. Um, but two, even if he claims his own blackness, he is still very much white passion. So he's going to have to wrestle with mm-hmm. his privilege and how he's experienced uh, in the world. And there may be black folks that want to push back on his blackness, you know? And so um, it's interesting preparing a child for a racial experience, an experience of racial identity that you didn't have, you know, and, and because mm-hmm. Kamani is so much lighter than me, that's what it's going to be like. Right. So I've got a kid that is technically biracial, but is mm-hmm. white passing. Um, mm-hmm. And to add even more complexity onto this, what's wild. And this is the crazy thing about race and, and, and um, phenotypes to me is there are other biracial kids um, that are as light as he is. Right. Like you, mm-hmm. you see this. So it's not unheard of, um, but it's definitely not typical, I would say. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so, I, you know, I don't I don't know how he's going to internalize it all. Um, he may right. not think too deeply about it because he's going to grow up with with a lot of people that are a lot of different shades, a lot more multiracial kids and biracial kids than I grew up with. Um, so for him, like he might just be vibing out and be cool. Um, but I do I do wonder, how do I help him? think this through how do i help all of our kids um understand that they're all biracial right to some degree yes. right but some are black yes. passing some are white passing um and i don't have good answers yet um but it's it's an active question for me mm-hmm. yeah and i i mean i guess it's been identified by child psychologists and other psychologists like we everyone goes through these different periods of needing to really hone in on their identity and we do live in a world that forces us to consider our racial identity. Of course, I guess, unless you're in the majority and then you don't really have to consider it. So I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. But I guess if you have, if you come from a family that is um, considered minority Mm -hmm. race, um, you know, if you come from a family with any type of black or brown people, you know, you you are forced to kind of reckon with where you stand. And I love that you're asking yourself this question too now, because the, the kids are still young. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I think about this as well with my own daughter. I I see, again, I would love for us to have more time to explore all of this because I, I see that we do have an innate need because of the society in which we live to identify in this way and to say like, okay, that's my people. And I could see that that's my people visually mm-hmm. and I'm safe there. Um, 
I don't have to put up, you know, any, any fronts or walls or masks there. And I can see that. Um, But I also experience something deeply that I think my daughter also experiences. And you hinted on something when you said like, there can be pushback from different racial groups. You know, um, we've both experienced that. My daughter has actually been experiencing this. Like she gets, she herself really embraces her, her black family, like Mm -hmm. the black side that she feels she has. And she leans into it even more because I've exposed us, you know, in that way. But also, like I said, my partner is black. So he Mm -hmm. brings all of his racial identity and culture into our family unit. Yeah. So she's very um, much open. Like she's, She's like, I'm American, I'm Latina, I am, you know, part black and my stepdad is black. But again, it's the external piece, right? So internally she's feeling these things, but externally people are telling her like, oh, you can't wear J's because you're not black Mm. or, or they're, they're, they're pushing back and basically telling her, and these are middle schoolers, right? So everybody's mean in middle school. (laughs) Um, I don't miss it at all. And I, I would feel for her, but there there's, you know, this, this idea that she's doing certain things and, and wearing certain things because she's trying to be black. Mm -hmm. And she tells me like, I just, and you know, I'm, I'm embracing all of it. Like I enjoy this. This makes me feel like me. I feel like me. Um, even though she's very light and she looks, she, I think her phenotypes do lean a little bit more on the Latin side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but she resembles me and her dad. So she's like right in the middle of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting for her. And I, I think the more that people do draw that line in the sand that was originally drawn due to white supremacy, which ties all the way back into part one of our conversation. So again, please, I, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that. But, you know, when we continue and perpetuate drawing those lines in the sand of saying like, this is what it means to be mm-hmm. black or white or Hispanic, even, you know, Latin X. Mm-hmm. When we keep doing that, you know, it, it ends up, I think, causing more harm. But the reason that we do that, I think, as people as humans is because there hasn't been a reckoning, Yeah, you know, like there hasn't been any reparations, you know, financially or on a large scale societally. Like we do still have those people. We still have Trump like trying to run for president again. Right. And he is not the only racist politician. We have DeSantis who is, uh, you know, sending people not, you know, there's the whole immigration issue on, on the border and other places. And, I think that's the reason why potentially, and maybe there's many reasons, but my, my assessment, one of the reasons is definitely like, we need to draw those lines because especially as people of color, there is still a difference. There's mm-hmm. a stark contrast in, in health outcomes, in quality of life, in, uh, you know, stress levels, yeah. like all of these things from the, from the public health side, which I would love to totally get into as well. Cause it's, we definitely need to mm. make change in that space. Um, but because there does still exist racism in itself and all of the disparities that come with a system and a society that still has racism baked into its laws, yeah, 
you know, um, I, I think that's why everyone still feels the need to draw those lines and push back. And I was bullied for not being black enough in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. My daughter is also now experiencing that. Um, but then on, on the other side too, there, there's a whole host of things on the other side is in the white side. Like there's a whole host of issues and perceptions and expectations and, um, barriers that exist from personal level, you know, cultural, and then all the way up into the institutional level. So it's, we are dancing with this tension, right. Of like, sure. I wish we could totally obliterate all the lines like no we we are different shades and we all bleed the same that's it but we we cannot get there without reckoning with the harm that continues to exist yeah so it's it's tough you know and and to be asking ourselves this question of raising our children and and helping them navigate this same labyrinth like the Mm -hmm. same maze that we have to go through Uh, it's important and it's tough. And like, what would it take? Right. What would it take? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so as we, as we wrap up here, let's just return to that for a moment. Um, and, and when I think about what, what it would take and then Brit, I'll ask you um, to think about that too. Um, for me, I, I liken it to just entering into any relationship, right? If you enter into a new relationship, especially a romantic one, you have to discuss your history. You have to discuss where you've been, how you were while you were there, as well as where you want to go. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in order to kind of understand each other, so you can move forward together and continue to move forward together. And then periodically you got to pause and do another look back, you know? And I think it's the same in our society. We've got to reckon with where we have all been historically, uh, where we are, and then we can talk about where we want to go and how we get there together. Um, So what, what would it take? I mean, the most basic step we can take right now is open honest, transparent dialogue and a willingness to learn and to navigate and and hold the feelings that come up with the learning, right? With acknowledging that America is a racist country. It was, and it still is. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got to just admit that, be honest and open about it. And then we can have some of these messy conversations and not just between black and white, but every racial group, um, because there's just a lot of mess to sift through. And so, so what would it take? Honesty, transparency, and a lot of grace, I think, as we, as we fumble through this together. Um, But the burden is not equal, um, right? Like the burden of these conversations is not equal. Like uh, Mm -hmm. our white folks, our white brethren and sisters and, and, and siblings, the emotional burden might be a little bit heavier um, for y'all, especially if you never even entered into these conversations. So I'll just name that up front. But, uh, but Britt, what do you think it would take? Yeah, I would agree to everything you said. Um, and then even like add a little bit to, you know, resisting the temptation when you're entering in these initial conversations and with, you know, when you, when you meet someone on the street, like just being willing to like give that space truly. And, and one day you like when, if you're entering, if you're new to these conversations and like, you're trying to, as a society, even like, we can't expect everyone to move at the same speed, I guess is what I, what I'm really trying to say. Like there will be good days. And then there's bad days where like, you know, I, I remember something that has happened, like just because I am a woman or just because I'm a woman of color. And you know what? I might have a bad day because I remember that. Right. Like, so we, as a society 
really need to understand that like it's not just one conversation and we're done. Yep. You know, it's not just like, okay, we had our, our moment where all the companies were getting racial training mm-hmm. and equity and diversity training, and then we're done. Oh, we did it. Pat ourselves on the back. No, yeah. it's ongoing. It has to be, you know, and it can't just be like a, a zoom where you're looking at a slide deck. It has to be these hard conversations and we have to be willing to both extend grace, uh, as well as, you know, extend courage and, yeah. and be brave enough to, face, you know, the messiness that is our past and present. I think. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's yeah. what it would take. And some reparations. Like, can we just I mean get some real reparations? Obviously, we gotta have that. Like <laughs> bare minimum. Like it's just yeah. 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 I think that's also what it would take. Yes. Robust, comprehensive, just reparations. Mm-hmm. Yet again, another episode. Um, but you know, I just, I'm really grateful for you, Britt, for joining me today and, and kind of unpacking um, some of these conversations. I know we can go a lot deeper and, and at some point in the mm-hmm. future, I, I think we probably will, but um, thank you for joining me these last two episodes. It's, it's been a blessing. Ben Tapper, it has been an honor as well for me. And thanks so much for even being willing to tackle some, a subject as deep as this, you know, as, as wide and, and profound as this, it's a worthy worthy effort. So thank you. Thanks, Brad. And thanks everyone for listening today. We'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm so glad you're with me on this journey. And if you have questions, ideas, or suggestions for the show, please reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram as Thoughtful Revolutionary. On Facebook, it's Benjamin J or Benjamin Joseph Tapper. Or you can email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. And I can't wait to join you for the next episode. Take care, y'all.